Thank you so much for joining us online. We want Bethany to be a place where people can get connected to God, to each other, and to the world. If you would like someone to talk to or to pray for you, you can email us at prayer at bethanysite.com. We also greatly appreciate everyone that gives so generously at Bethany. If you'd like to give, you can do so by clicking Give in the top right menu on our homepage at bethanysite.com. Again, thank you for joining us online. We hope that this service will be a blessing to you. Hello, Bethany. It's so good to see everyone, and if you're watching online, we just want to welcome you, and if you would turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 10, we're in the last message of this uh, series of Good Shepherd, it's called The Scripture Cannot Be Set Aside. As you're turning there, I I wanted to give you an update on the water offering. At Christmas Eve, we took a huge uh, water offering, it goes to provide clean water for people that don't have clean water around the world, it's one of the most important things that changes uh, life uh, for Uh, people that don't have clean water for their health, for their longevity, especially for their children, but also for uh, girls and women, because in third world country, usually girls and women have to carry water, and and many times that uh, delays or stops them from getting education. So we really change uh, people's lives. And and last uh, time I updated, we had uh, received an offering on Christmas Eve of $88,000, which is just amazing. But um, there was snow, if you remember the snow that we had, and mail was delayed, and so checks came in, and so there's been more money that's come in, and I wanted to give you this update. So the update now is, um, for the water offering, is 104668 and 28 cents. So that's, that's pretty awesome, and uh, I, I just am praising the Lord. It was just, just kind of amazing. I want to thank you, and thank you for people online that have been uh, sending in checks and uh, giving online. Just thank you so much for doing that. I think it's going to be a, a game changer for a lot of people, and uh, this last year we've seen some amazing things, so I just praise the Lord. Let me read to you um, uh, John uh, 10, verse 30 through 42. And uh, this uh, part of the, of the um, section is uh, not as thrilling, at least to me, it's not as thrilling, uh, you know, to grab your heart as Jesus saying, I am the gate, and then uh, later saying, I am the good shepherd. This is the kind of scripture that gives me a stomachache. Uh, this is, uh, you know, my hero, my savior, my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, where uh, these people uh, misunderstand, uh, are filled with unbelief, and they want to kill him. And so they pick up rocks to kill him. And this is a terrible confrontation. Uh, this is uh, in winter. This is during Hanukkah. Uh, Jesus is in the colonnade, so it's probably inclement weather. Uh, maybe it was foggy like today. I don't know if you know where I, we were at. It, it never got above 38 degrees, and it was foggy so it could have been cold it could have been rain and every once in a while it snows in Jerusalem so it it could have been that setting and they're so angry at him because Jesus is saying I am the gate I am the good shepherd and I am my father in one so then uh, it's kind of like the aftermath so let me just read it to you starting with verse 30 and we already did verse 30 and a few of those verses but I want to just read that so you can see the context I and the father are one Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From, for which of these do you stone me? 
We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent him into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed, and many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So in other parts across the Jordan River, many people believe in Christ, but here among uh, the Jewish leaders, they are trying to kill him. And that scene is, you know, very, very strong and antagonistic. And I I personally don't like confrontation. I don't like confrontation that leads to a fight. I remember in elementary school, I don't remember if you had it, but I went to LA City Schools and and they were dangerous places, even if you were a fifth grader. And I remember, you know, someone saying, fight, fight, everyone go run to go to the fight. And I would go the other way because I was, I was little, I wasn't a good fighter. And a couple times I got cornered and, you know, I had to get into a fight and I, I didn't know how to fight. And I remember in seventh grade, I had a ninth grader pick on me. And, you know, I think I've told you the story, you know, I didn't know how to fight. But my mom said, if you ever get into a fight, uh, I don't care if you lose. I just want you to hurt the other person so they never want to fight you again. So I didn't know what to do with this kid, so I just bit him as hard as I could and scratched him and hit him, and he was a bloody mess when we got taken into the vice principal. And he got swats, and I didn't, because he knew this kid. He knew this kid liked to pick on seventh graders. So uh, he told me, now, I'm not going to tell your parents, because I know, George, your parents will get you in real terrible trouble. So I'm, I'm not going to tell them, but don't you get in a fight again. Don't you count this as I'm getting, letting you off. So I, I want you to know I learned from that, but I still, I, I just get a stomach ache when I see this situation that's happening. And as they're gra- gathering and they're getting ready to stone him and they want to grab him and they probably want to take him outside of the courts and, and kill him outside of the courtyard, uh, Jesus basically says, well, wh- why are you stoning me? I-, I did all these miracles from the Father. Well, which, which miracle are you going to kill me for? You know, that's almost like sarcasm. And they say, we're not going to stone you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, now we have this app that you can get our app, and I have my sermon notes in there. So number one, is Jesus is charged with blasphemy. And blasphemy is basically the idea of slandering God or claiming that you're God and and you're not. And Jesus, when he says, I and the Father are one, is claiming to be God. We are one. We are one substance. And, And they know what he's saying. And so they say in verse 33, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And they understood what he was saying, and then Jesus answered them. And this is number two, Jesus' defense. Is it not written in your law that I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart, his very own, and sent him into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? If he's called you gods, and why couldn't you accept me as the son of God? 
And the, the thing is, where does it say that? And this is a very confusing piece of scripture. So this comes from uh, Psalms 82. And uh, I, if you'll turn to Psalms 82, and, and I'm going to read Psalms 82, the whole Psalms, and I just want to show you the context of it. And it's just such an interesting uh, interpretation that Jesus uses scripture to defend himself with these religious leaders. They know the law. They know the Bible. And he uses Psalms 82. Now, if he had been in discussion, you remember earlier we, we were noting that it was the Pharisees that he was arguing with, and the Pharisees believed in the entire Old Testament. But the Sadducees, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, I always use that one. So the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe uh, that the word of God was the Psalms and the history books. They believed only in the Torah, the first five books of Moses. So we know that Jesus is really talking to Pharisees when, when he says to them and quotes Psalms 82. Let me read it to you. And I, I just want you to know that the word gods is like little g. It's not big g like God. It's little gods. And Jesus is referring to them as Elohims. Remember we said one of the names for God is Elohim in Hebrew, and this is the little gods. Now, this is confusing and probably makes some Christians upset when I say this, but Jesus uses this, and the psalmist writes this one, and he uses Elohims, because Elohims can be for rulers or judges. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor or the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Then here's the verse, verse 6. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations is your inheritance. Now, in Psalms 82, the reference is God being the judge of all the earth, and especially the judge of rulers, the judge of other judges. And this psalm cries for justice and equity by the rulers, the politicians, the judges of the time. And Jesus quotes this, you know, because it's used as the Elohims, the judges, the leaders, the rulers. And these Pharisees, these opponents, are the rulers of the synagogue and the rulers of the temple and the rulers of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish nation. And Jesus is saying, you are judging me and you're judging me wrongly. And he quotes this one, that God is the judge, and he's my father. The father is in me, and I am in the father. And I just love it that he quotes scripture as defense. If you got in trouble and you were hauled into court, would you use scripture as your defense? If you got into a fight with someone, would you use scripture as your defense? And this is one of the most important things in our lives and I've staked my life on it, is that God's word is our authority and my authority in my life, in my practice, and in my faith. And we have a culture, even Christian culture, that says this is secular and then this is religious. And we don't want it to ever cross over. This is secular and this is religious. This is faith. 
and there are Christians that can live just doing the secular thing, and then on Sunday they do the religious. But I want you to know, for followers of Christ, there's this idea that the Father is in us, and we are in the Father, and Christ is in us, and we are in Christ, and all of our life is living with the authority of scriptures in us. So you can see I'm going to pound away on this, right? You can just tell I'm going to do that. So uh, the other thing about um, this idea, if you look at the end of verse 38, uh, Jesus is basically saying, you know, if you don't want to believe me, okay, don't believe me, but believe the works. Look at the miracles. And they've been really upset that he healed the blind man on the Sabbath. And then he says the most unique thing, the Father is me and I am in the Father. The Father is me and I am in the Father. And I just like that, and I also like Star Wars movies. And, and I know that that probably doesn't relate to you, but there's this one Star Wars movie that, you know, I, I watched again, you know, this last week, and Elaine sits with me and we watch Star Wars movies, and one of them is called Rogue One, and it's really cool. I just love it. A lot of people don't like it, but I love it. And there's this mystical character that is connected with the force and he just he's blind but he goes by faith and he says the force is with me and I am with the force the force is with me and I am with the force the force is with me and I am with the force and I I was listening to that and I said you know Elaine they ripped off Jesus that's from the Bible the father is in me and I am in the father the father is in me and I'm in the father and then when we get just a few more chapters when we get into John 14 and then Jesus wonderful prayer in John 17 uh, there's this verse uh, John 14 20 it says on that day you'll realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you you are in me, and I am in you, and I am in the Father. And John 17, 21 says, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us. So I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry about what we're going to say when we get into confrontation. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will give it to you. And there's this wonderful peace that comes over. And the secret sauce of Christianity is not religion. It's not rules. It's relationship with God. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. If you get nothing else, you know, and you, someone quizzes you afterwards, what did you learn in church tonight? You, you say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. So uh, let me take a deep dive just because I'm kind of a wonky pastor and jump into um, the authority of the scriptures, number three, the authorities of the scripture. Jesus has this high view of scripture and uh, when he gets in these conversations, he many times just turns to scripture and, and uses scripture uh, to defend himself and to also uh, point out inconsistency and hypocrisy in other religious leaders. Uh, and even when he faces the evil one, he quotes scripture. So this, this saying, verse 35, the scripture cannot be set aside. Uh, the, in the English Standard Version, it's the scripture cannot be broken. A New American Standard Bible uh, says, and the scripture cannot be broken, but puts it in parentheses, which is very correct. And then the New Revised Standard Version says, the scripture cannot be annulled, which is you know, another take on that. And then the King James Version says, and the scripture cannot be broken. So this word that's used for set aside, annul, broken, 
Uh, all those translations are very good. And Jesus is saying, you can't condemn me and stone me because you guys are setting aside scripture. You can't do that. If you either believe in scripture or you don't believe in scripture. And Jesus has this really high view of the Bible, the scripture, Old Testament. And now we have the New Testament. And I want you to know that we have a high view. So I just want to go over some of these verses. Matthew 5, 17, 18 Uh, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I'm not here to get rid of it. I'm here to fulfill it. And then Hebrews 4.12, it's one of my favorite verses about God's word. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And when I pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit when I preach, one of the prayers that I have is give me strength to wield the two-edged sword, the Word of God. And it's not me that's doing it. It is God. And the Holy Spirit is the one that brings conviction. Because I don't know you. I don't know your heart. I don't know your thoughts. But God does. And I've had people at the end of my messages, I've had one guy hunt me down and say, you have been tracking me. You have been tracking me. Where are you getting this information? I said, oh, that's not me. That's God. God's speaking to you. And many times people will come out and go, Pastor, Pastor, and I said, is God speaking to you? And they'll go, yes, you know. And then the, the one that's so humiliating, and, or humbling, I shouldn't say humiliating, humbling, is when someone comes out and says, you know, you know what God said to me when you were speaking? And they'll say, this is what God is saying through you. And that's not what I said at all. I worked, you know, many hours on this sermon, and you totally got it wrong. But God is the one who does it. And it's a two-edged sword. And the word of God is awesome to use and to know. 1 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God-breathed in the New American Standard Bible is, is translated, all scripture is inspired by God. So I believe that every scripture in the Bible is inspired by God, is God-breathed. And 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit led the writers to write, carry them along and write the scriptures. And so uh, it's not an interpretation of their own. And when we interpret the Bible, we don't want to have just some of our own interpretation. We want to make sure that we are interpreting the scriptures correctly. I've dedicated my life to doing that. And I still make mistakes. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is the most fascinating and wonderful thing. And then even in the Old Testament, Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on, on the path. So we can trust God. We can trust his word. 
because it's true and we can stake our very lives on it. Uh, the other verse I wanted to read was Matthew 4.4. 4. This is when Jesus is um, being tempted by Satan and he responds to one of the temptations and he uses God's word. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that is one of the most wonderful ones, that the word of God is even more important than bread. And I got to tell you, I love bread. And I love the word of God even more than bread because it's life. And because, you know, as you study it and live it and it becomes your foundation, it will change you, it will mold you, it will anger you, it will challenge you. And uh, John eight thirty one says, if you abide, this is Jesus, if you will abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And that idea of abiding in his word is remaining in his word and studying his word and, and, and loving his word and obeying and following him. And the word of God is so important that we abide in it. And there are many people that don't do that, even Christians that you know, are, are floating through life and they don't really have the foundations because they're not abiding in his word, learning his word. So when you say, okay, I'm going to do what God says, I'm going to go by God's word, the next attack that happens is uh, the interpretation of God's word. Because once you say, okay, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, the next thing that happens is the culture says, well, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's politically incorrect. And where do you start in the Bible? I've known people that have first become Christians and they start in Genesis and they get about halfway through Leviticus and they give up because it's you know, so complex and to them it's dry and they're not trained in it. They don't have a taste for it. And it's sort of very much like, like um, a book like The Hobbit or the, the Fellowship of the Ring series. You know, they're, they're epics in the Bible's epic. You know, and it covers thousands of years. It had many, many writers, and it, the culture that it's talking about is older. And and you know, there's poetry and stories, and some of them are disturbing and violent. And and then the heroes. Many times, they, the Bible shows all their faults and and folly. And you read other religious books, and they had all these good ones. And we have these guys that you know, the greatest king in Israel commits adultery. You know, and 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 has the 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 woman that he commits adultery has her husband put to death. I mean, just horrible stories. And yet the Bible is so true and it's timeless and it's this epic. I, I love, you know, um, reading about the Inklings, you know, which is C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and who wrote the, the Hobbit and stuff. And uh, there's a story that's told that um, Tolkien was uh, reading um, one of his uh, uh, Hobbit stories and uh, it was a section with dwarfs, you know, and they had all these names, Feely and Keely, and, you know, all these names, you know, and uh, the guy that, one of the guys that was listening, one of the Inklings said, oh, not another stinking dwarf, you know, and J.R. Tolkien was extremely uh, agitated and irritated that guy for saying something like that. And I want you to know, when, when you are getting into the Bible, it's this huge, epic thing, and people don't know where to go, and, and they feel you know, the one thing that no American wants to feel, and that's stupid. And I don't want you to ever feel stupid when you come to God's word. 
I want you to know that it is vast and meaningful and deep and complex. It is a story of stories. It is the story of faith and grace and God's, you know, taking mankind and bringing them on a historic journey to salvation and finally to heaven itself. And uh, one of the attacks is, well, how do you interpret the Bible? And there's different schools. There's a school that's an allegory school. Everything's allegory. There's a symbolic school. Everything's symbolic. You know, different denominations and churches do it. So let me give you the four principles that I use in studying God's word. Four principles that I use in studying God's word, which are the correct way to study God's word. So you, I'll let you make the decision whether you want to do this or not. But the four principles of interpretation, and when I say interpretation, you know, the one, the big fancy word for that is hermeneutics. And that, I learned that in, in seminary, and I had never heard that word before, and I just felt so stupid in that class. I kept my mouth shut, and uh, it was a very difficult, but it was the most wonderful class I had ever attended in my life. So here's the four principles. Number one, the principle of divine illumination. And that is when you read God's word and you've asked Jesus in your life and you are in Christ and Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit illuminates the word of God and it is explained and comes alive in you. And there's periods where we go through dry periods and we have periods where it's just fresh and wonderful and there's periods we go through different seasons of life. But this is the idea of John 16, 13 says, when, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so the Holy Spirit is actually alive and living and, and will make it come alive to us. Number two, the principle of contextual interpretation. Isn't that a horrible, horrible, hard thing to, you know, what kind of, what did you learn in a church? I, I learned about the principle of contextual uh, interpretation. You know, no one's going to come to church if you're thinking you're sitting in that. But what it, that is, is that you look at two things in the context. In other words, you're not just jumping from verse to verse to verse to verse. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you want to take sections of the Bible, a whole book, a whole chapter, you know, a whole paragraph, and, and look at the context. Even if you're just doing one verse, you know, you want to have the context, and the, the literal context is, you know, the literary part of it. You know, is this poetry? Is this historic? You know, what was the author's intentions? Who is he writing to? What's the history behind it? You know, what kind of clothes did they wear? And you can ask who, what, when, where, and how. And then the historic context is well, how does it play a part in history and what is God doing in the history and who are these people and what's happening and, and it's, it's, to me it's the most fascinating stuff especially when you try to think of the original audience with the original uh, writer and who he's writing to and what's the historic context and then the third one is the principle of clarity and that's when we're looking for the purpose. What is the purpose of this paragraph? What is the purpose of this chapter? What is the purpose of this book? What was the purpose of the author? And uh, it is the most fascinating thing. And sometimes it's really hard. And John is really easy because in uh, the end of John, towards the end, there's this one verse that says, I've written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. And so we know that. And it's written to people who don't know Jesus. And it's wonderful. And I wished every book said this is why it was written. And sometimes you have to work hard to 
figure out that, that clarity. And one of the things that I want you to know that I believe in is that the plain sense reading of God's word and the common sense interpretation of God's word makes the most sense in the meaning of God's word. I remember hearing a sermon from a guy uh, about um, David and Goliath. And Goliath you know, was the giant in somebody's life, you know, and, and David is, represents Christ and all the Israeli people that were watching it happen, they were you and I standing on the sidelines helpless and we all need Jesus to do that. And that's a good application, but the interpretation of that is that there was a giant named Goliath and he was challenging Israel and there was a young shepherd boy named David who put five stones into his pocket and took one stone, took one shot at that big giant, hit him in the head and the guy passed out and then David went over and took his sword and cut off the guy's head. And it's an awesome story. And I remember when Sunday school, they never told us about the cutting off of the head. And then when I heard about it later, I said, Oh, Lord of the Rings, I get this. This is great. Thank you for laughing. So the principle of clarity is really cool. And then along with the principle of clarity, there needs to be the humility to use George's I don't know rule. There's a George I don't know rule. And that is there's some places in Scripture we don't know. And many times we don't like to say that, I don't know. My mom had a way of saying, I don't know, which was really her way of saying, also, I don't care. But she just said, I don't know. Used to bug my wife, Elaine, to say, I don't know. So I have to be very careful if I just say, I don't know. Uh, I say, you know, I, I, and then I try to catch myself because she doesn't like me to say, I don't know. But many times, I don't know. And if I don't know, I'll say, I really don't know. And, and she said, well, I'm not really asking that question, but I, I don't know. And, and many times people don't want to hear, I don't know. But here, uh, there's this verse, and I was a, a youth pastor for a short while. First church I went to, and I was a youth pastor, and I was going to seminary. And I did the typical thing, go around, give your favorite verse. And one of the youth leaders gave this verse in the King James Version. Let me read it to you first in the New American Standard. First Chronicles 26:18. At the par bar on the west, there were four at the highway and two at the par bar. But he said at King James Version, at the par bar westward, four at the causeway and two at the par bar. And he said, that's my favorite verse. I didn't even know what he was talking about. I couldn't even think of the lesson or what I was going to. I just, I said, that's in the Bible? And he says, well, you're the youth pastor. You should know. I, I got caught in that guy's trap. It was just, it was just crazy. And, and we don't know what the par bar is. Even Jewish scholars that study the Old Testament, they don't know what the par bar is. It's been lost. And the, the NIV, you know, translates it this way. As for the court to the west, there were four at the road and two at the court itself. And that's awesome. But they don't really know if it's a court. It could have been colonnades or even suburbs. What if it means the suburbs outside of the gates? And it's talking about gatekeepers, you know, so we know that, you know, there was four at the road and there was two at the court itself, but we don't know what a par bar is. And I don't think it's wrong for us to say, I don't know what a par bar is, you know, and that may be just a really good thing, you know, when your spouse says to you, you know, uh, what about this? Or do you know how to get to this? You know, could you look it up on Google Maps and you just say par bar, you know, and it's just an awesome way. I don't know. You know, if you have a, you know, a, a child that just does something crazy and you say, what is he, what is he doing or what is she doing? And you're just saying par bar, you know, I love that word. And we can take scripture and have fun with it and, and enjoy it. But many times we have 
have to be willing to say, I don't know. When someone says, explain to me in detail the Holy Spirit, I can give you a lot of illustrations, but I don't know. God is incomprehensible, but he is knowable. So let me give you the, the principle of the grammatic historical method. The, that's number four, uh, the, the, the principle of grammatic historical method. And that basically is the one that I just love, and that's what I spend my time doing. A lot of the time when I'm preparing a sermon is that uh, you observe the scripture, observation. You know, uh, who is it speaking to? And you ask the questions, who, what, when, where, how? And it is so wonderful. And then interpretation, you interpret it. And you don't use a a commentary until after you've made your interpretation. And then you check the commentaries to make sure you're not starting a cult. And then uh, correlation is where you, you know, correlate it to other scriptures and make sure that, you know, that it's in alignment. That, you know, we always compare scripture with other scripture. And that was a complicated sermon, was it not? And I want you to know that God's word to me is so special, so wonderful, so awesome that there is um, a need for us to make it and have a high view of scripture as Christ is. Then we can say, Christ is in me and I am in Christ. And Christ is in the Father and the Father is in Christ and I am in the Father and Christ, and Christ and the Father is in me, and I trust in his word. Amen? So uh, one of the things that we're uh, doing is, um, you know, this month is praying impossible prayers, and we have these prayer cards. If you haven't filled one of these out, you could grab one of these and and put down a couple of uh, impossible prayers. Uh, The scripture comes from Luke 18 that says, uh, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Uh, Matthew twenty seventeen says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And uh, I, I, I want to pray uh, and, and just uh, be praying for that. I, I, I would love for you if you could fill out one or if you have an extra one. Uh, I have a whole stack of them, and I've been going through, and I pray for every one of them. And uh, if you want to put it in one of the offering boxes in the back, that was great. Uh, in Revelations, in two different places, it talks about the incense is, you know, coming before God is the prayers of the people. And so I'm just going to use this uh, candle as uh, the idea of incense and the, our prayers going before God and asking God to do impossible prayers. I told you that one of them that I'm praying is the end of the plague, that God ends it worldwide. Another one that I'm praying for is uh, Katie, my daughter, and her husband, Aaron. They've been married for a long time. They haven't had children, so we're praying, you know, that that would happen, and they're in that battle with infertility. And some of them can be personal. Some of them can be national. The most wonderful surprise that I got from you folks and even folks uh, online is the prayer cards that said, I'm praying for and they have a name or someone that they want to find God. And my spouse or my child or my daughter-in-law and my son or, you know, those kind of things, you know, where they're praying for people. My neighbor, my boss, people are praying that people would come to know Christ. And so I just want to kind of give you an early save the date. Easter is coming and we will be giving an invitation for people to 
find Christ. And we build a bridge out here and we invite people to cross the bridge because Jesus is the bridge. So just keep that in mind as you are praying for people to come to know Christ, that you begin to think of ways that you can invite them and they can respond uh, to the gospel. Hey, stand with me and I'm going to uh, pray for us and then we're going to sing a last song. Father God, we just thank you, thank you, thank you. We give you uh, everything. We stand before you and we say your word is high. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us the word, that you are the word, that you're the logos. We thank you and praise you. Bless each person here. Bless them. Shine your face upon them. And bless each person watching this uh, online. Bless them. Shine your face upon them. Give us joy in the Holy Spirit this week. In Jesus' name, amen.